Good morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 53 here in just a moment and read down through the end of the chapter, finishing uh, Mark 14 with one additional sermon to go before we get to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus uh, on Resurrection Sunday in two weeks, which I'll talk more about at the end of the service. Uh, before we stand and read, as you find your place uh, in your Bibles and get your notes settled, uh, I just want to—I just want to make mention of something. Uh, this weekend, uh, actually, more, a little more than the weekend, starting Thursday around lunchtime through yesterday, the elders of our church uh, spent extended periods of time together. We went on a retreat together, uh, leaving families behind for a couple of nights. Uh, to pray together for our congregation uh, and to uh, have lengthy discussions concerning important matters uh, for our church now and uh, what we would believe to likely be well into the future. Uh, I tell you this, number one, because last Sunday I asked you to pray for that. Last Sunday evening during our third Sunday evening service, I asked you to pray uh, for us, uh, for your elders of, of this church uh, and so when we ask you to pray for something, we like to report back and say thank you for praying, first off. But I also just want to say this. I, I, am, I say this to them regularly, but I don't know that I say it enough publicly. I am grateful for the men that lead this church. Um, for the spirit with which they do so. Many of them who work full-time jobs and have families and children, and yet they would um, take time off of work, several of them, uh, to be able to gather together as elders. We gather together at least once a month as elders, but to be able to do this kind of in a longer format. Uh, we put them in front of you every week. You, you saw Chris Vorwald today, one of our elders. We put them in front of you during our elder scripture reading and prayer time intentionally because we want you to know who they are. Uh, I, I want you to know, you see me every week or most every week. And you see Pastor Brian most every week. You may inter interact with Pastor Jay quite often, but we want you to see who our non-vocational elders are because I uh, commend them to you as men worthy of following. And so I just want you to know how grateful I am about how seriously they take the matter of shepherding the flock of God that has been entrusted to us. Would you now stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're going to begin in verse 53 together. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful to you this morning for the gathered body of believers here at Nansman River Baptist Church, for faithful leaders in our church, for the under-shepherds of Christ that you have placed as elders here who teach the word, who guard our doctrine, and who shepherd the flock of God entrusted to us. God, would you raise up more men to serve in this way in our church, we pray. And we thank you, God, for the goodness of your word to us, how it also instructs our hearts according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within those who have believed in Christ and how it calls those who have not unto salvation by the regenerating work of the power of God. Father, now as we turn our attention to this specific text in your word, may we see who Jesus is and may you give us the strength to not embrace false witness either in our words or in our deeds about the Messiah, the Son of God, who died in our place so that we might live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we turn here to the end of Mark 14, this uh, last night of Jesus' life, it has taken us this entire month kind of to move methodically through these uh, various accounts including the, Lord, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, the abandonment of Jesus by his friends, the arrest of Jesus. And now we pick up with Jesus having been left by all of the disciples and he is now in the custody of the Sanhedrin, of the religious elite, quasi-political authority in Jerusalem. The introduction of this text found in verses 53 and 54 connect two events for us. One is Jesus being led to the high priest where Peter tells us that, or sorry, where Mark tells us that all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes 
come together. This group is the Sanhedrin. There would be 71 members of the Sanhedrin. Likely not all 71 came together. Likely it was a selection. There was a a necessary quorum, a, a number that needed to be met, but that they, a selection of the Sanhedrin, comes together in the, this midnight trial, quickly rushed together. But a formal trial of Jesus is going to take place in these verses inside of Caiaphas's home. Caiaphas was the acting high priest at this time. Outside, something different happens. Not a formal trial. As Jesus undergoes a formal trial inside, outside, Peter undergoes an informal trial, a testing of his faith, of his statement that he had made previously. I mean, we're talking hours before where Jesus says, you will all abandon me, and Peter says, they may all abandon you, but I won't. Even if I have to go to death, Jesus, I will go to death. And in that moment, in this courtyard, as Jesus undergoes a formal trial before the Sanhedrin, Peter undergoes an informal trial in front of just a ragtag group of people that had gathered in this courtyard to warm themselves by the fire. And what we see here is that both the Sanhedrin and Peter bear false witness about Jesus. But Christ, in the midst of it, fully reveals himself. Jesus pronounces truth in the midst of false accusations, knowing that outside his likely closest disciple, the one who he had placed within leadership of that group of people, the one who had chapters before in Caesarea Philippi confessed, you are the Christ. Marking for us the confession of faith that the church has held dear for centuries would be denying him. In the midst of all of this falsehood, Jesus tells us who he really is. This is what we want to see today in two parts, considering these two stories together, because I believe Mark records them for us to be taken together. It's why verses 53 and 54 intertwine the arrest of Jesus, the bringing of Jesus to Caiaphas's home, Peter following out in the courtyard. We need to take these two events and learn from them together today. So the first one shows us the final rejection and false witness of those who should have recognized the Christ. This is not the first confrontation that Jesus has had with the religious elite of Israel. During his Galilean ministry, which spanned about three years, he was in regular conflict with a portion of the religious elite known as the Pharisees. These were the men who would control the synagogues, the local meeting places, the community meeting places, out in the countryside of Israel. Every town, just about, had a synagogue, and they would come together on the Sabbath to read the scriptures. They would come together to study together, to receive teaching together. And the Pharisees, in the main, ran the synagogues, and they regularly opposed Jesus. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, 
As Mark records it, only one event of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We know from the Gospel of John, this has happened over and over. Jesus would encounter a different sect of the religious elite known as the Sadducees. These were the wealthy elite, religious elite of Jerusalem. They didn't like the Pharisees very much, but they were on the Sanhedrin together. But there were more Sadducees than Pharisees, and the high priests, the high priestly family typically was were, were of that specific sect, the Sadducees. This is going to matter when we get to the end here. That's why I want to remind you of these things and introduce them to you. But these men have hurriedly come together at the arrest of Jesus. They're now going to have a trial. They know they have to get this right. We've, we've already been told some of their plot as they were plotting with Judas that they were afraid of what the people were going to do. So they needed ironclad evidence for two reasons. Number one, for them to be able to, to, to uh, punish someone by death, it was going to require that Rome had to sign off on it, particularly a man named Pontius Pilate, who we will consider next week. And so they needed real evidence to be able to go to Pilate. Number two, they feared the people. Remember, this is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover has just happened. Jerusalem has swollen to hundreds of thousands of people. All of Israel has, confer, has, has, has come now to this one city, and they are afraid of what the people might do if they can't present ironclad evidence against Jesus. But they have none. They have none. They are seeking to put him to death, and they are, verse 55 tells us, seeking testimony to be able to do none, but, but they found none, and so they bring in false witnesses against Jesus. Many, Mark tells us in verse 56, bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. So one guy would come in and say one thing, and one guy would come in and say something else. Both of them were saying the things that the Sanhedrin wanted to hear. But they obviously, according to the testimony of Mark, weren't saying the same things. That they weren't gathering for themselves the kind of evidence that they wanted. Verse 57 tells us that some stood and bore false witness against him, saying this isn't the only false testimony against Jesus. But Mark tells us of one specific. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So here we have this, this trial, this mock trial, this hurriedly midnight, you know, let, let's see if we can get ourselves together because they've gone so far as to arrest him. They're in this now. There's no, there's no real turning back. They've got to put this thing together. They bring one witness after another. You can imagine this going on in the, the wee hours of the morning, just one witness after another claiming to have heard something, claiming to have seen something. And finally, some witnesses say, we think we've got him. I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. You want to consider that for just a moment? You want to consider that accusation? First, I want us to recognize something that is in play both here and in Peter's denial, Peter's false witness about Jesus. And that, there is egregious sin taking place in the life of the Sanhedrin and eventually outside simultaneously happening in the life of Peter. These, these are men 
who knew the scriptures. The Sadducees would have known the first five books of the Bible, likely by complete memory. They were the only ones that they actually considered to be the word of God. The Pharisees and some others would have considered other writings in the Old Testament to also have been the word of God. But the Sadducees would have only held to that. They would have known from childhood many of the teachings of the Old Testament, particularly the Ten Commandments, probably some of the first things they would have learned. The fourth of which tells us in Exodus 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These men are using their religious piety to condemn Jesus. They are seeking to condemn a man who is uncondemnable. Peter, by his actions, different, but we'll do the same. It's a warning to us to use our religious piety to condemn where no condemnation is required is a fourth commandment violation. We so often think of don't take the Lord's name in vain as somehow not saying God's name. That actually shows up here in the text here in just a minute. They were so afraid of of violating this commandment that, that Jewish people would refuse to actually say the Old Testament name of God. They created all of these other names that they would use in place of. But, but do you notice the flaw in this legalism? And we often in, in Christian circles will practice the same thing. We, we won't say God's name or we'll tell, we'll, we'll tell people, don't take the name of the Lord in vain if someone will utter some type of cuss word that's including the name of God. And listen, we shouldn't speak like that. But the fourth commandment goes far beyond just the, the, the name of God that we would use. It's how we use what we are saying about God against other people. It's when we are claiming to be on the side of God, but are actually not. This is what we see in the Sanhedrin during this midnight trial, that they believed they were doing God's will. And in a moment, we'll see. Unwilling to even say his name and yet breaking the fourth commandment because they are trying a man who is uncondemnable and searching for the evidence to do so. So just to put it into American legal terms, they are treating Jesus as if he is guilty until proven innocent. And so the one that seems to stick is that he said he was going to tear down the temple. And so let's see where Jesus says something similar to this, but not the same thing in the accusation. In John chapter two, John records for us that the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's talking about Herod's renovation of the temple. Herod the Great's renovation of the temple that began even before Jesus was born. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus never said or did the very thing that the witnesses the Sanhedrin have called are accusing him of. They are accusing him of seeking the physical destruction of the temple. And by the way, 
under Jewish law, seeking the physical destruction of the Jewish temple would be a capital offense. They are on to something here. This is kind of why I think of all the accusations, Mark tells us this one, because this would have been a capital offense. It even would have been something that Rome would have said it, it is worthy of, of, of the punishment of death. But their testimonies did not agree. And so they have a significant problem because the Old Testament was a clear, at least in convincing the crowd, maybe not convincing Pilate, but at least in convincing the crowd, the crowd would have known that the Old Testament demanded that, that two or more witnesses substantiate one another. And nobody can actually agree on what Jesus said. Nobody can agree on, on having seen Jesus attempt to tear down the temple because he didn't say he was going to tear down the temple. Now, knowing the stories, if we did, we know that by the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the temple is replaced. But Jesus wasn't saying that it needed to be physically torn down. He was speaking of his body, that something far greater was going to take the place of the temple. And notice what Jesus does in verse 60. And the high priest stood in his midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. As we have walked through this last night of Jesus over the last several weeks, we have repeatedly gone back to Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant that tells us about the life of Jesus hundreds of years before who the Messiah would be, the, 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 the person of the Messiah, the ultimate death of the Messiah, his sacrifice in our place. And listen, Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus does not answer the false accusations made against him. Jesus is eventually going to answer but he's going to answer when something truthful has been said about him. But he does not feel the need to answer the false accusations because they are false. He knows they are false, and here's what he knows. Either the Sanhedrin also knows they are false, or the Sanhedrin should know they were false. Think about this with me for a moment. Is there anyone in Israel who should have known who Jesus was more than these 71 men? Were there any more learned? Were there any more pious? Were there any more dedicated? Were there any more who knew what the scripture said about the coming Messiah than these men? These were the leaders of the nation. These were the religious leaders of a dedicated group of people longing for a Messiah to come. They were looking for him, and he is standing in front of them. They should have known, and instead of seeing Jesus for who he is, they bear false witness against him. Now look with me in the end of verse 61. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, it's interesting, in, in our English Bibles, this is turned into a question. In the original text, it wasn't actually a question our English translators phrase it as a question because the, the, really, the content of it makes it a question. But what the high priest says to him is something like this. He says it in an incredulous way, a rhetorical way about Jesus. You're the son of God? This is the way that the high priest said it to him. And in two parts, 
in his incredulity, his hatred towards Jesus, the high priest confesses two things that are true, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that Jesus is the very son of God. Here in the end of verse 61 is the example of their unwillingness to use the name of God. One of the words that they would use for God instead of the word God is blessed. So that's why he's saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And number two, are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus answers this because now truth has been spoken. And Jesus is not going to argue with false accusations, but he is going to confirm truth. I am. There's a lot we don't have time to go into. Jesus saying, I am. If you know your Old Testament, if you know particularly the book of Exodus, Jesus is saying something important here. What did God reveal to Moses in the burning bush? I am that I am. How does Jesus respond to, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, I am. Then he connects two additional Old Testament texts saying, you should have known this. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus says to them, you will not. He doesn't say, notice, you will believe. These men, because of their hardness of heart, are incapable of belief. But one day, one day you Caiaphas... One day you, 71 of the Sanhedrin, one day you will see with your eyes the truth that you have mockingly proclaimed at me. And Jesus affirms this in two parts. First, you will see the Son of Man. And second, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Jesus makes two Old Testament references in order to confirm what the high priest has said about him, that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. The first from Daniel 7, where Jesus draws the the terminology that he most often used about himself, the Son of Man, where Daniel sees in a night vision of Daniel 7, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. The Son of Man is the Messiah, the one sent to save God's people from their sin. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ and Messiah. Same thing. Yes, I am, I am that one sent by God. I am more than that. Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, he's confirming here by looking at Scripture. You will not only see the Son of Man, you'll not only see Daniel 7, but you'll see him seated in a very specific place at the right hand of power. Inevitably, this drew their minds to Psalm 110, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now go back just a couple of chapters during that last week of the ministry of Jesus. And, the, and Jesus is confronting kind of over and over different sects from the Sanhedrin. And he asks them a question. He says, how can, how can, the, 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 how can the Messiah be the son of David if David calls him his Lord? So for David here in Psalm 110 to call the Messiah his Lord, it means that the Messiah isn't just a man, but the Messiah is also God. And Jesus is confirming both of these things. Yes, I am exactly as you have said. I am the one sent from God. 
and I myself am God. These men should have seen it. They should have known it, but the hardness of their heart made them unable to do so. Now, of the two claims of Jesus, one of these is more egregious than the other in the eyes of the Sanhedrin. It was not against the religious law. Remember, you have to separate. There's religious law and there's, there's civil law from Rome, from Israel, and sometimes these things overlap. It was not against the religious law of the Jews to claim to be the Messiah. It actually happened quite a bit. There were a lot of guys who claimed to be the Messiah. There, there were a lot of people out there claiming to be the one who was going to rid, rid Israel of Rome and reestablish the throne of David. A lot of people kind of aspired to this, and every single one of them died at the hands either of the Romans or of their own people. So while it would have been frowned upon, and the Sanhedrin would rather nobody do that, because any claim for messiahship challenged the power of the Sanhedrin and their relationship with Rome. That's not what seals the deal. But when Jesus said, I am the one seated at the right hand of God himself, claiming sonship, yes, I am the Messiah. But the reason I am the Messiah is because I am God. This is where the accusation of blasphemy comes in. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments. The word translated there, garments, is is his inner garments. I mean, the, the high priest has tore his clothes to nakedness. And said, what further witness do we need? We don't need someone to say that he's tearing down the temple. We don't need someone to say that he's causing some type of rebellion or whatever the other accusations are. We don't need any of that. We now have his word. What further witnesses do we need? Because we've all heard it. There are now, however many of the Sanhedrin had gathered, we are all now witnesses of his what? Blasphemy says in verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all, everyone gathered, condemned him as deserving of death. Jesus' rightful claim as the son of God is what sealed the guilty verdict of the Sanhedrin. Not the false accusations of whoever it was that the Sanhedrin drugged before them that day, but it was the true words of Jesus began the process of condemnation leading him to the cross. Verse 65, and he began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. You have to remember the majority of the Sanhedrin is Sadducees. Sadducees did not believe in the gift of prophecy they believed only in the first five books of the Bible. They, they would, would not have believed that Jesus could. They are asking, they are mocking Jesus, asking him to do something that they do not even believe would be possible. So this rushed midnight trial of Jesus concludes with mocking and beating and ultimately a full denial of the truth of who Jesus is. Those who should have seen him denied him. Number two the denial and false witness of one who knew Christ well. Now Mark returns not to the formal trial of Jesus, but to the informal trial of Peter in the courtyard. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. 
And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The trial of Jesus likely continues for hours into the wee early time of the morning. And Peter has followed close enough to be in the courtyard. This has been right around this time, end of March, early April. It's still rather cool at night in Israel during this time. And so the compound of the high priest, which is large, had an indoor section, but would have had a large outdoor section as well where servants and, and soldiers and others maybe just coming by would gather and they would build a fire and they would sit and wait out the night. We know this goes in the wee early hours of the morning because, well, this is when roosters wake up and start to wake everyone else up. And so unfolds here the informal trial of Peter, not by religious elite, not by educated authorities like the Sanhedrin. But as Luke tells it, really by a servant girl, someone who would probably be in her teens, having no authority, no position of authority, no position of respect. She is simply probably just waiting for some order to go and draw water and begin the morning's breakfast. And she looks at Peter and she calls him, he, she says, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. You, you were with him, and Peter denies it. She begins to tell it to some other people, just some no-name bystanders. This isn't the chief priest. This is just somebody that happened to be there. And the crowd begins to say, the bystanders begin to say, and again, he denies it. And you get to the third time, and they call him a Galilean. Luke tells us that they knew he was a Galilean because of his accent. He had a country accent, you can imagine such a thing. In a country act, he lived on the water in Galilee. He talked like a fisherman. And here he is in Jerusalem talking like a fisherman. And they're like, we can tell where you're from. Your accent is giving you away. And Peter gives his, his most clear denial. The way that Mark records it in verse 71 he begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Now, there's varying ways to, to, to read this and hear this, but we need to hear the gravity and the weight of it. By the time we get to the third denial, Peter is saying something like, I swear on my grave. Probably even more so. The, the, the way the language reads, the, the fact that he is saying he not only invokes a curse, but also a swear, it is very likely that the Lord's name is involved in this. It's very likely that Peter, just like is happening inside, is breaking the fourth commandment outside, swearing by God's name on something that is not true. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter's informal trial and triple denial reminds us that a faithful witness to Christ is most important in the simple and the ordinary, 
It, it's how we talk about Christ and how we live for Christ around something like a fire pit that matters most. If Peter isn't immune, Peter, the head of the disciples, the one who first professed faith in Jesus, that you are the Christ, if Peter isn't immune to this kind of denial, then hear me, church, neither are we. And the temptation for us to deny Christ is very likely not to happen in a formal trial before an authority like the Sanhedrin. It's far more likely to happen sitting around the break room where you work, gathered with your friends on a weekend. It's very likely to happen in an unexpected place. Our words, even gathered around a fire, warming ourselves at night, matter. It's the simple and ordinary of life that leads Peter to swear likely by God himself on his life that he does not know Jesus. But Jesus had told him that this would happen. He had told him this had happened early in Mark and we had already considered that. I'd like to add some context to it now from the way Luke records this for us in his gospel. On that same night, in that same conversation where Jesus tells Peter he will deny him, he also says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus himself had recognized that, that Peter's greatest trial was coming up. And that Peter would fail it. Oh, but that he would turn again. And that he would strengthen the brothers. And this is why... The Gospel of Mark does not record the restoration of Peter, which we will consider during our time of application. The Gospel of Mark doesn't record that for us. But the Gospel of Mark does record something that is as important. And we'll consider this in our sermon in two weeks. Sorry if this is a spoiler for you. Jesus is going to be crucified. But it's okay. He rises from the dead. Okay? It, it all works out. And when he does, some, some women come to a tomb and they find an angel there, all right? And this is Mark 16. And, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. This is an angel, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed and said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and notice this, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There, there you will see him just as he told you. None of the other disciples are named, but Peter is. Why? Because this angel speaking the word of God to these women who have come to prepare the body of Jesus after his burial <laughs> wants to make clear that Peter's still included wants to make clear that Peter would be restored, that God's grace, his mercy towards Peter is greater even than Peter's lack of faith in that courtyard. So what? By God's extravagant grace towards us, we can bear true witness of Christ in all circumstances. By God's extravagant grace towards us, we can bear true witness of Christ in all circumstances. You may one day stand before an authority asking you to deny the name of Christ. 
It may not happen to anyone in this room, but it's happening to brothers and sisters around our world today, and it could one day happen to us. But for every one of us, in ordinary, mundane, day-by-day life situations, we will be faced with the opportunity, like Peter, to take a stand for what is right and what is true, or to deny it to take the easy path, to take the world's path, and to say we do not know Jesus. And whether we are standing before an authority that has the power to destroy our very bodies or just a group of no-name people, God's grace towards us is mighty. And his work and power within those who he has called to himself and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit allows us in every circumstance to bear true witness of Christ. This is why the Gospel of John records for us the restoration of Peter in John 21. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. They have gone back to Galilee as Jesus had instructed them. Jesus has breakfast with them. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John gives us a note here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In that courtyard, gathered around that fire, uh, Peter three times denies Jesus as Christ, but after his resurrection... Jesus asks him, and it is no mistake that Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? One time for each denial. And in the same way that Peter was grieved after that rooster crowed, he is grieved again because he recognizes what Jesus is doing. He's recognizing the sin of his denial, but the grace of God abounds towards Peter, and Peter restores him. And Jesus tells Peter, The day is coming where this will really be tested. The day is coming, Peter, where you're going to have to put action to this. And Peter does. Decades later, just a couple of years before Peter is crucified, in the way that Jesus said that he would be, in Rome, under the rule of Nero, Peter, signing his name to it, writes a circular letter to churches and says this in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
that same Peter who was scared of a servant girl in the middle of the night asking if he knew Jesus. Now, living in Rome under the rule of Nero is writing to persecuted Christians and saying, oh, but this is just a little bit of trial. Have faith in Jesus. Hold firm to your faith in Jesus. Even if they take our lives from us, they can't take that which is more important. The knowledge of Christ and the salvation that he brings into our lives when he causes us to be born again to a living hope. Hear me today, Christians. You will have the opportunity maybe in an official way, definitely in just a mundane, simple way to profess faith in Jesus. Will you have the kind of faith that Peter doesn't demonstrate in Mark 14? Oh, but does the rest of his life. And for the one in here or more who have never come to faith in Jesus, know this, the call to follow Jesus is a, not a call to popularity, it's a call to take a stand that will become distinctly more and more unpopular, but yet a, a call of salvation that promises eternal life for those who are in Christ. Would you believe in what Jesus has done for you today? Be saved, we pray. Let's go to him as we conclude now. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, that Jesus tells us who he is, even though it seems all around him are unwilling or unable or too scared to see it and confess it themselves, but that we can know it, and we can know it with certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, sent to save God's people from their sins. With that firm foundation, be an opportunity for us to take whatever stand is necessary in our lives. Help us, God, even in just the simple, mundane, ordinary ways of life, to not deny Jesus, but to stand in his salvation, to believe and live out his teachings. And we thank you, God, for the strength to do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for the grace and mercy that you offer to us, the, the, the grace and mercy that we're going to stand and sing of now that, that looks past our former sin, places them on Christ, and redeems us from the pit. Thank you for that grace that you've shown us. May we worship you now because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, we stand together as we respond in song.